You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that corners you at a wedding to tell you a very long story about a cursed albatross, most likely while high on opium. I'm Megan. I love the spruce goose. I'm RJ. What? That's my favorite bird. The spruce goose. <laughs> I, I all I can think of is uh the Simpsons one, the spruce moose. <laughs> we'll quick, we'll take the spruce moose. Hop in. Oh, spruce goose. I said hop. It. Which cartoon was that? DuckTales? I don't know. Adventures? Avengers? Avengers? What? what? The, the Adventures Down Under? Oh, were they down under? What? The Rescuers <laughs> Down Rescuers Under? Rescuers Down Under. Wait, the, the Spruce... Fuck, now I'm confused. We're gonna have to restart this whole fucking no, thing over. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, Spruce Goose is a real thing, huh? Yeah, because that's what The Simpsons was making fun of with the Spruce Moose, because in that episode, Burns goes full Howard Hughes. Hmm. Cartoon. No, that's not a thing. Oh, Fuck you, Yogi Bear, and the magical flight of the Spruce Goose. I've never even heard of that. What the fuck is I that? I loved Yogi. You did? I loved Yogi and Boo Boo. Really? Yeah, Huckleberry Hound. Like, all for that. real? Yeah. Those are like old-ass fucking cartoons. I'm a little old. Hey, Boo Boo. <laughs> hey. Okay. Yeah, Yogi. Nope. <laughs> I can't do that voice. <laughs> no, you can't. You did a good Yogi Bear, though. Yeah. Hey, they went on the spruce goose. Hey, boo-boo. All right, this has been a minute and a half of nothing. <laughs> what? I also like the Maltese Falcon, but so you're going with uh, Seagull? Albatross. Albatross. I'm doing the... It's the fucking rhyme of the ancient mariner, the Carlisle, who was high on opium pretty much all the time. Do you not know what the rhyme of the ancient mariner is? Now, an albatross in golf means you hit a three under. Oh, my God. He goes birdie, eagle, albatross. Hi, I'm Megan. Welcome to I'm RJ. Welcome to our literature podcast. So we Hey Megan. Yeah, RJ. You didn't introduce our guest. We don't have one. It's back to just you and me, and it does feel weird that there's not a third party that we're holding hostage. So uh, we figured it's been a hot minute since we we did a poetry. However, you want to technically count Beowulf, I suppose. So I, I put a I pull a poets to the Patreon. Hold to the pros. Yep, and it was a, a pretty varied list, but it turns out that I kind of unwittingly stacked the deck by including E. Cummings, who won by a fairly significant margin, presumably because his last name has the word come in it. You animals. Oh. What? I didn't get it before. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, haha, just joke aside, Cummings is, uh, he's definitely a poet that a lot of students have opinions about mostly the same opinion which is what the fuck is this and why are you making me read it because ee e. cummings is weird and it's hard enough to get high school students to give a good goddamn about poetry as it is without going and making it weird so what are what were your personal experiences with ee e. cummings if any not sure We'll come back to that, I guess. What do you mean we'll come back to that? This is this is what we do in the beginning where we talk uh, about if we're familiar with stuff or not. I know you are because you're the one who told me about one of the fucking poems we're going to be covering. Um, read the poems in school. You don't remember when? You don't remember... College, generally, Okay. 
probably freshman, sophomore-ish year. So no, none of it, like, stood out to you enough that you really remember it? No. Okay. I didn't really read it in college. I know I got some of it in, like, high school, and I really did not get it at the time. And, you know, part of me wants to blame my teacher, whoever it may have been, because I don't remember for not trying all that hard to make him accessible. But I also know that, like, as a 15, 16-year-old or something, I wasn't prepared to, like, put the mental effort into trying to understand, like, the point or why he wrote poems the way he did. But then I got older and took, like, poetry classes in college and stuff and and learned to like give things a chance and realized like you know hey like this crazy stuff that he does with like form and structure and visual presentation is actually really interesting and cool and then it all loops back around to me trying to teach it to my students like look not all poetry has to be like boring rote sounds the same kind of stuff like it can be cool only to have them look at me like This is bullshit. He's writing a poem about a falling leaf and making it harder to read and understand on purpose. We hate him. And we hate you. Such is the cycle of E.E. Cummings. Things are going to get a bit complicated, though, on this episode. Because, as I've been describing here, a lot of what makes Cummings both so interesting and also such a pain in the ass is that a lot of his poems are not just about the words, but how they're displayed on the page, which makes just talking about them difficult. So it does kind of limit us, but... We're going to do our best because I think, you know, not enough people give this weirdo's poems a fair shake because you look at it and you go, "Mm, nope, and then you don't try. You kind of shut down, which is what I used to do when presented with poetry. I'd be like, nope, I don't fucking get this and I don't want to. So see, I'm used to trying to look for art in a visual medium. Porn. (laughs) I was waiting. I was sitting there waiting. What art do you look for in porn? Well, is it art? That's really the big question. Yeah, you know it when you see it. Mm, that is what they say. That is what the Supreme Court said. It's I, true. I'm trying to figure it out. I, I cannot define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Exactly. So I really got to look hard, and I got to be thinking to myself, is this art? I'm glad that you're you're constantly on the lookout, because art is everywhere. Sometimes it's on their face. This is going to be a really weird Sometimes episode. Okay, nope. All right, so... Let's stop talking about porn and start talking about poetry. Poetry. Although, not really poetry, I guess. But poets. Let's talk about John One, one poet. One, about one porn poetry. Well, we're, we're good. we are going to read oh. a horny poem. We're going to read a fairly horny poem later. But first, you have to tell us about the horny poet. Not as horny as John Donne, because, you know, who could be? I don't remember what episode that was that we did John Donne, but his name's in the title of the episode we did on him, so you go back and listen to that. Most of his poems are horny. Tell, tell us about E.E. E. E. Cummings. Ah, yes. Elijah Eugene Cummings, the U.S. Representative for Maryland's 7th Congressional District. I hate you. Who is currently the chair of the House Oversight Committee. I hate you. He has been quoted as saying, quote, We are very proud of what has happened here tonight. We are proud of our city. Which I believe is a quote he uttered aloud after hearing our most recent episode. Now, I thought it was weird that you wanted to look at the poetry of E.E. Cummings. One, he's alive. <laughs> Two, he's a congressman. How did you do, how long did you, did you like Google around looking for dudes with, with the same fucking initials and last name? There was just two of them. There's two E.E. Cummings. <laughs> One's a bald black man who is the congressman for Maryland. Who is quoted as saying that, perhaps about our show. It's entirely possible. He was very proud of what we did here tonight. As he well should be. I'm, yeah. I'm proud of us. No, I'm never proud of what we do here. What you should have done is you should have specified we're doing lowercase E.E. Cummings and not capitalized E.E. Cummings. Go on then. 
So, Edward Estlin, lowercase for now, E.E. Cummings, very white. Yes. And not a congressman, as it turns out. No. Was born October 14th, 1894, and died September 3rd, 1962. Double E was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Edward Cummings and Rebecca Haswell Clark Cummings. Their arch nemesis family, of course, was the Goings. Anyway, Daddy Cummings, who did the coming and Mama Cummings. Uh, uh, how many of these are? Uh, how many uh, of these are there? <laughs> was a Harvard professor and a nationally known minister for the South Congregational Church, a Unitarian church. Mama E was a stay-at-home mom who spent her time on Double E and his sister Elizabeth. These folks really liked E names. They did. Given that Daddy was a Harvard professor, the children grew up around pretty smart people most of the time. They also grew up with a rather relaxed lifestyle. When not in Cambridge, the family was usually summering in one of their two New Hampshire homes. I mean, only plebs <laughs> can afford one vacation home. God, what are you, a uh, poor person? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I have there. I feel like um, the writers we cover, very few of them are ever like, middle class they're either living on the street edge of poverty or just obscenely wealthy yeah because the middle class just get their ticky tack houses with their ticky tack lives that's your take that's my take i got it from weeds <laughs> and regina specter i guess i guess that was a cover she didn't write that song wow this is news <laughs> to me who wrote the song i don't know it's an old song it's a much older song she just covered it did yeah. you know natalie and brulia cover torn when you told me, yeah. <laughs> did you know Natalie Merchant covered E.E. E. Cummings? We could do this for like a while. Wait, she did? Yeah, I'm going to talk about it later. Wow. <laughs> also, given the Harvard and Unitarian leanings of the family, it should be no surprise that Double E grew up espousing and exhibiting many tenets of transcendentalism. You know, the whole self-reliant stuff. Those transcendentalists are at it again. Although, this would have been too late in the game to hit up Ralph Waldo Emerson for money. The true transcendentalist way. The idea that we, in our own ways, are actually all God. And so you don't have to wonder, what if God was one of us, Joan Osborne, according to the transcendentalist? You are God. Wow, that is a joke that no one is going to get. In a way. That song is so fucking old. This is where we're at now. You just tell old man jokes. That's... Well, people don't know this song. Then they're going to thank me. <laughs> introducing them it's to Joan Osborne. It's not even a good song. What if God was one of us? No, you're wrong. Make sure <laughs> just you a, add... just a slob like one of us trying to make his way home. I'm, wow, I remember more of this than yeah, this I... is the great song. No, at Megan Danger. Want to know your thoughts? Uh, at Megan Danger was taken, so that's actually not my thing. Whatever her Twitter <laughs> handle is, I don't know what Megan's Twitter handle is. At Megan somehow, or the show. Please keep going. Put us on blast. Good song. I take. Double E leaned into the whole poetry thing from a young age. He apparently began penning poems at the age of eight. His family, being the New England hippies they were, cheered the young boy on. You could say he was really coming along. I suppose given all the information we've already heard about Double E... Yes, there's been so much. Oh, look, there ain't a lot out there. That when he wandered off to college, it should not be shocking, he went to Yale. Oh, break it away from Harvard? Kidding, he went to Harvard. Oh, well. He wouldn't look a Yale man in the eye. So much for rebellion. After all, he was a Harvard boy through and through. He graduated Magna Cummings. God damn it! (laughs) Law. And was part of 
uh, Phi Beta Kappa. It's not even pronounced that way. It's pronounced cum laude, but Phi. <laughs> Ku means laude. <laughs> and it was part of Phi Beta Kappa, basically the Society for Nerds. Yep. I'd list some members from the Society, but we'd be here for a while. So I'll just throw numbers at you instead. 17 U.S. presidents, 40 U.S. Supreme Court justices, and 136 Nobel laureates. That's a lot of fucking nerds, yeah. yeah. A lot of people. After finishing up undergrad, he dove right into a master's degree, graduating with it from Harvard a year later, in 1916, at the ripe old age of 22. And what is any good old 22-year-old going to do once they graduate from college? Well, if previous episodes of Ono oh Lit Class are any guide, it's either... Moving to New York City or going to war. And well, <laughs> for double E, you might as well call him Private Cummings, which is what I call it when I do it in a private. Yeah. <laughs> Stuck the landing. <laughs> it was 1917. World War One was all the rage. You're a bad person. He was signed up to be part of a French ambulance corps due to some administrative mix-up. After arriving in France, he was not assigned to a unit for five weeks. So for five weeks, he just toured around Paris without a care in the world. You know, just war stuff aside. He fell in love with the city. He would return to Paris throughout the rest of his life. So he could have been... uh, Because wasn't Hemingway was an ambulance driver? I'm pretty sure in Italy, though. Oh, my bad. During his time in France, he wrote home on a pretty regular basis. This proved problematic for Double E. In his letters, he would mention how he thought war was stupid. Or how he couldn't quite understand what all this fighting was for. And that he didn't really see a huge philosophical difference in the evils both sides represented in the war. And the problem with writing these kinds of letters? Especially during wartime on the war front? Well, military censors read the letters and arrested Double E for espionage and, quote, undesirable activities. Espionage? That seems like a bit of a stretch. And that happened about five months after he started working for the Corps. He was in prison for about three and a half months while his father worked on getting his son's release. Eventually, after Dad Cummings wrote a letter to Woodrow Wilson, decided to work some magic, and Double E was sent back to the States. Double E, once home, wrote about the ordeal in the autobiographical novel, The Enormous Room. He discussed the moralities underlying what happened to him, and about the physical and mental hardships he had to endure during his time locked up in a room with about 30 other men for the nearly four-month ordeal. Also, upon returning to the States, he was, you guessed it, drafted into the U.S. Army in which he had to serve. That sucks, so they just sent his ass right back out there, huh? Well, because he volunteered for the French Ambulance Corps, and then right. he gets back home, and the U.S. Army's like, hey, you're an <laughs> able-bodied man. Get your ass now, back out there. I know you're being drafted. <laughs> that sucks. Uh, luckily, though, he stayed and served stateside in Massachusetts. Oh, well. So it went a little better for him, to say the least. <laughs> no more foreign prisons. Additionally, this also gave him time to meet a little lady named Elaine Orr. who a- determined Another E. Uh, who determined that double E and his comings were sponge-worthy. Gross. Oh, that Elaine. Just the only the most relevant of references on Oh No Lit Class. Just real topical, real in touch with, like, the popular culture of today. See, your problem is you point them out. Other people will get it or they won't. <laughs> but now people, if they don't get it, they're going to look it up. Yeah, and? That destroys the in-joke. Because we can't have people understanding references on this show. That will just ruin it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the two had a whirlwind romance, which was a little awkward since she was still married to her first husband, Schofield Thayer. That's a name. He was a writer and art collector. He was also pretty rich. 
a lot of his stuff is in MoMA nowadays, so you might know the name if you're a purveyor of arts, unlike us. No, Ben, we never will be. So yeah, no, being married, that would put a damper on things, yeah. The fact she was married, though, didn't stop the two from fucking all night long. Gross. During this time, Double E was writing all sorts of erotic poetry, which I believe we'll be reading later. We sure will. Which I guess makes sense, all of it. Not just that we're going to be reading it, but that he was writing it. You get that dick wet, well, you gotta let the world know, right? I guess this would be a good time for me to drop a poem of my own. Would it though? In the style of E.E. Cummings, with all sorts of punctuation. I'll read it the best I can. Meg and I tapped that ass. Tap it, tap it, tap it, tap it too. Thin. Meg. Yeah. <laughs> oh, should I do an impromptu? No! Poetry no, writing with RJ. No, you shouldn't. Let your partners know how much you love them through poems. This is the opposite of ASMR. Or through interpretive dance. I see you, Toothless. I'm sure our audience is all over How to Train Your Dragon 3. They know what I'm talking about. They know the dance I'm talking about. Okay. They can't see it. They just hear you making that noise. They see it with their ears. I hate this. Ears. They're on the side of your head. Okay, from now on, we only have guests because that forces you to behave. (laughs) That was such a coil. This is gold. Oh, yeah, sure. This could be our funniest episode. Yeah, I guess we'll see. I made it happen. (laughs) You're welcome. Keep talking. So it was 1919, and after the war, he was 25, and he was ready to take on the world. He actually moved to Paris and lived there for a few years, where he focused on his writing before moving to New York and getting some of his work published. Always New York. Always. As we will discuss, he became quickly known as one of, if not the, avant-garde poet of the time. He and Elaine Orr actually did get married after she divorced her previous husband. The two by this point had already had a child out of wedlock. Awkward. And here's the real kicker. After only being married for two months, the couple separated. The spark was clearly in the illicitness of it. Once it was a fair and legal relationship, well, why bother? I guess things worked as a romance and not so much as a relationship. Things changed when you got to smell someone's toxic farts. In the middle of a brewery in Maine, Megan. Wow! How about... Ew. (laughs) You're a fucking monster. No, that was you. (laughs) But I love you anyway. Obviously, Double E and uh, old Elaine and her sponges just couldn't handle it. No. Double E took it in stride, though. He took more tours of Europe traveling through the continent, now also including Russia. He was an essayist for Vanity Fair. In short, things were going swell. As we know, things can't be swell forever. In fact, if you've been experiencing a swell for more than four hours, you might want to contact a doctor. Mm. In the case of Double E, Mm -hmm. well, there's no good way to put this. Mm. But his dad was killed. Oh, no. And his mom was injured in a pretty bad car crash. That sucks. I'll let Double E explain it in words I could never come up with myself. 
I quote, A locomotive cut the car in half, killing my father instantly. When two brakemen jumped from the halted train, they saw a woman standing, crazed but erect, beside a mangled machine, with blood spouting, as the older said to me, out of her head. One of her hands, the younger added, kept feeling her dress, as if trying to discover why it was wet. These men took my 66-year-old mother by the arms and tried to lead her towards a nearby farmhouse, but she threw them off, strode straight to my father's body, and directed a group of scared spectators to cover him. When this had been done, and only then, she let them lead her away. Wow. Biographers claim that the death of his father deeply impacted Double E. His poetry began to focus more on the concrete aspects of life, like death and love. Specifically, he wrote the poem, My Father Moved Through Dooms of Love. Double E then focused those energies on getting a new wife. This time, a woman named Anne Minerly Barden. This time, the marriage lasted three years. A big upgrade over the last one. Baby steps, you know. This one ended in a Mexican divorce, which is something I had never heard of before. Me neither. <laughs> Apparently, it's really easy to get divorced in Mexico. Basically, only one partner needs to show up before a magistrate and be like, Yo, shit ain't working. I'm out. And that's it. Boom. Over. So it's quicker and cheaper than an American divorce. Is it legally recognized in America? Yeah. Huh. A Mexican divorce. Just to be clear, and dump double E. Don't feel too bad. Almost immediately after that, Double E met Marion Morehouse, who was a fashion model and a photographer. I guess realizing that marriage never really ended well for him, Double E just stuck with this gal, and the two never got formally wedded. Instead, the two just stayed together as a couple for over 30 years until Cummings passed away. Okay, so it was apparently just something about getting married made it not work, so he figured it out. You know, third time's the charm. Just stick with it. (laughs) No pressure. In his later years, Cummings was anointed as a guest professor at Harvard and gave lectures here and there, but it was not a formal gig. Instead, he lived a relative life of leisure. He traveled, he ate, he drank. He also became a Republican, oddly enough. You would think given his lifestyle and his writings that, you know, kind of a liberal dude. Nope, his travels around Europe, particularly to Russia, turned him hard to the right. In fact, he supported Joseph McCarthy and that whole McCarthyism thing. <sighs> yeah, go refer back to our episode on the Crucible, 99 Problems, but a witch ain't one, to, to learn about McCarthyism and, and witch hunts and why it's fucking wild for a, rare, a fucking poet, artist person to support Joseph McCarthy. Yeah, that take hasn't aged well, my man. Nope. I mean, there were clues in some of his poetry. Yeah. In many of his poems, he would make use of quite a bit of racist and anti-Semitic language and slurs. Apparently his his friends were actively saying, like, E.E., can you maybe not, like, publish those, dude? Like, this is a bad look. But he himself insisted that the poems were meant to be, like, a commentary on racism and anti-Semitism and stuff. One biographer named Catherine Reef argues... Quote, he intended to show how derogatory words cause people to see others in terms of stereotypes rather than individuals. And then she further quotes him saying, America, which turns Hungarian into hunky and Irishman into Mick and Norwegian into squarehead, is to blame for the K, the K word for Jewish people, he said, according to the quote within a quote. And so your mileage on that varies, like... Personally, I feel like you don't get to make a commentary on the harmfulness of slurs while actively using those slurs unless 
you fall into the category of people who have been hurt by them, you know? I feel like it's a lot different when, when someone who's experienced being called a slur uses it in their work to make a point rather than some dude who's never had that shit directed at him, if that makes sense. Or Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> oh, we, d- we don't have the time for that. <laughs> but yeah, we're not going to be tackling those poems because... Well, because they're full of slurs and I'm not super comfortable with that. Another thing that I learned that I had no idea about was the capitalization or lowercasing of his name. I remember always seeing it lowercase without periods between the E's. Turns out his signature was in capital letters with periods. In fact, that is generally the way he typed his name also. He changed it sometimes later in life interchangeably using capital and lowercase letters after a publisher threw the idea by him as one that the publisher liked and thought would just sell more books. Like, hey man, be a rebel. (laughs) Just lowercase your name. And Double E was like, nah, dog. I don't think so. And the publisher's like, no, I'm not asking guy. <laughs> You're like, I'm publishing your book. Yeah. That's so weird because I feel like that's one of the things like really strongly associated with him. Like that, that he does the lowercase thing without the, the dots and stuff. It's like Marketing. a, like a, like a bell hooks thing. Yeah. Nah, that's marketing. M- marketing. Yeah. yeah. So Double E just adopted the idea at best half-heartedly. <laughs> At the age of 67, he suffered a stroke and passed away. At the time of his death, he was actually rather well-known. The only American poet said to be read more than Cummings was Robert Frost, who has a whole music song named after him. A whole music song? <laughs> if only <laughs> Wait, e- wait, wait. Really? A whole music song? Not even half a music song. <laughs> if only Double E was a little more famous, maybe there'd be a bunch of songs called Cummings. Those would assuredly be club bangers. Oh, yeah. Hey, I mean, two things here. <laughs> Before this research, if you asked me who are the, like, best or most read American poets, I probably wouldn't even name Frost or Cummings, like, in my top ten. That's true. Like, if I... Yeah. What about their one and two? Huh. Who's the first American poet that comes off the top of your head? Dickinson. Okay, so yeah, I go contemporary first, and I think of Maya Angelou. Okay, that's fair. The end. (laughs) Well, one thing you didn't mention is that I mean, you did mention that Cummings didn't only do poems. You did mention the book, The Enormous Room. Um, He also wrote plays, and I never knew that either. And we are not talking about the plays, partly because this is a poetry episode, but also because I I read this direct quote from him about one of his plays and was like, yeah, I don't need to explore this further, Uh, but I just want to share the quote with you and, and the listeners. So it's about a play that he wrote called HIM in all caps, in 1928, and is as follows, quote, Relax, and give the play a chance to strut its stuff. Relax, stop wondering what it is all about. Like many strange and familiar things, life included, this play isn't about. It simply is. Don't try to enjoy it. Let it try to enjoy you. Don't try to understand it. Let it try to understand you. He had me at the beginning with this, like, eh, stop trying to wonder what it's all about. And then he fucking lost me with, like, let the play try to enjoy you. It's like, oh, God, this is why modernist and avant-garde artists can often be exhausting. Hey, everybody, it's Megan. Along with the creature that is constantly screaming for attention and validation that isn't RJ, Pravi. Gonna hold you here until you meow. Come on, meow for me. (laughs) Okay.
And we're both here to tell you that this episode is supported by our wonderful, beautiful, just absolutely stunning patrons on the inside too. Because yeah, inner beauty is also very important. So like their guts and stuff are are also quite nice. Um, hmm. Wow, that went off the rails real quick. Including our most recent patrons, Liz and John. Uh, John, in particular, is the second person to take us up on the pick a book reward tier. So look out for whatever John is going to subject us to, because at the time of, of, of doing this, I don't know yet. Heavy is the responsibility, John. We're all counting on you. And uh, this episode's pod pal is Josh Hallmark, host of of a bunch of things. He's a very busy man. Our Americana playlist podcast, and most recently, True Crime Bullshit. I will admit, I have not listened to True Crime Bullshit because I'm a big baby. And I, as I've stated before, I can't do true crime because I'm a weenie. Even this trailer that I'm about to uh, play here gives me the fucking willies. But that's because it's a really good trailer because Josh is really good at podcasting. I've you know listened to a lot of his other stuff. I've been on Playlist a few times. I think as of when this is coming out, uh, there's one next week or the week after that I'm going to be on. I can talk about Whitney Houston. It's a lot of fun. But anyway, I know that he is a quality dude and that everything he makes is awesome. So even if I'm too afraid for for all you who have the, the nerves of steel necessary for true crime, definitely be sure to check it out. In March of 2012, Israel Keyes was pulled over outside of Lufkin, Texas. And in that moment, hundreds of lives would be forever changed, including mine. Join me on this strange, terrifying, and emotional journey as I attempt to find the missing, understand a killer, explore the impacts of crime, reconcile with those left behind, and subvert the genre of true crime. In the FBI files, they found images of over 40 missing persons on his computers. I think we, it's fair to say that Israel Keyes had a fetish about missing people, which is why he wanted to ensure that his victims didn't get found. True Crime Bullshit is available now on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcatchers. Go to www.truecrimebullshit.com for more information. So now it's time to talk about some poems. So uh, we're going to just go right out the gate with one of his more famous and visually based poems because we're just going to get it out of the way. And uh, we're stuck calling it bleh. Because more often than not, Cummings didn't bother to title his poems, as is the case with many a poet, including Ona Liklas alum Emily Dickinson. So people just substitute the first line of the poem as the title. Unlike Dickinson, Cummings' first lines are often broken nonsense. And so this poem is just bleh. is the letter L, is the beginning of a parenthesis, and the letter A. And so the poem itself, I, I can't even really read properly on here because it's just the word loneliness falling down vertically. But right after the L in parentheses is the sentence, a leaf falls, also falling down vertically. And then the rest of the word loneliness. Uh, this is the one that I was talking about before where my students were like, this is bullshit. What is this? And why do we have to look at it? But like, it ain't that deep. It, it's visually structured like a leaf falling from a tree and like, I don't know, a single leaf loneliness the leaf could be indicative of like autumn and things are starting to die and you're feeling lonely and shit you know isolation 
maybe seeing your own feelings reflected back at you in nature or projecting them. And then, of course, we get to like, okay, but why should I fucking care? Dude made a falling leaf poem that looks like a falling leaf. Well, I mean, words made to look like the image they're describing is cool, but beyond that, it's neat. People weren't doing it. And then he did it. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So look at the thing. A more extreme and interesting version of this is in a different poem that we can't talk about here because it is just so it's it's, it's visual we can't convey it i can't even read the title because it's like because it's just the word grasshopper with the the letters mixed up and it's it's a great example of a visual poem and also something that if it was put in front of me as a student i probably would have tried to stab my teacher in retaliation because it looks like fucking nonsense there's jumbled words bouncing all over and, and trying to read the poem aloud is literally impossible so just google ee e. cummings grasshopper poem and check it out yourself because it's basically like a word puzzle in poem form and that's cool and you have to do some mental work to kind of get what's going on and, and you shouldn't be afraid of that like it's fun mental work it's it's easy to look at it at first glance and be like what the fuck is this this is nothing but it's like a visual imagery of like a little grasshopper bouncing around and the words assemble themselves from what looks like gibberish into grasshopper it's cool. I'm going to tell the whole story, though. Yeah, well, yeah. it's hard to convey that. Through... Not really. He's watching a grasshopper, and then all of a sudden it leaps. <laughs> then he goes back down. And grasshopper do what grasshopper do. A grasshopper do do what grasshopper do. There. Yeah. I like that one. It's it cool. Yeah. It's really interesting, but it's it's tough to talk about. <laughs> so, think about this poem. Megan mentioned it. Grasshopper. You know, I should look up poems. I thought the poem was called Butterfly, or that it was about a butterfly. So... When I took my poetry class, part of what the class was that we read poems and poets. Yeah. And then we would try to emulate that. So I wrote about a butterfly. You confused yourself with E.E. E. Cummings. Yeah. He did grasshopper. I did the butterfly. Jesus Christ. And I made my words look like a butterfly. <laughs> it was a very pretty butterfly. I'm sure it was. In my mind, it looked like butterfree. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say that L- L- the, the Leaf Falls one was published in 1958. So like he was really fucking old by then. You've seen a lot of leaves. So many leaves. So I included one. It's called Buffalo Bills, published in 1920. And I include it because apart from the Leaf Falls poem, it's the only one that I specifically remember being taught as a kid. It goes, Buffalo Bills defunct, who used to ride a water-smooth silver stallion and break one, two, three, four, five pigeons just like that. Jesus. He was a handsome man. And what I want to know is, how do you like your blue-eyed boy, Mr. Death? So here's the thing. I didn't get this poem then, and I don't get it now. And I just want to be fair, because most of these are going to be me espousing why these poems are awesome and what they mean, and so to balance it out, I don't get this fucking poem. Like, we all die, I guess. Even cool dudes, like like Buffalo Bill. I don't know. He's defunct. No more cowboys. Where have all the cowboys gone? If a man as manly as Buffalo Bill gets killed and dies, we all die. Some of us get remembered. Because we could shoot a gun. <laughs> shoot a gun real good. Yeah, Mr. Death is going to visit everybody someday. I would also say Buffalo Bill's dad also died when Buffalo Bill was pretty young. So maybe Double E felt some sort of connection. Perhaps. You on the wiki? Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing some research. Yeah. Maybe didn't do. I did read them. Like, what else? Oh, I don't know what people said about them. About Buffalo Bill? Yeah. Oh. Or any of the poems. Yeah, I did these for a lot of the poems. Yeah, just skipped over Buffalo Bill. Kind of. Because we, we completely misread that poem. Oh. Yeah. Well, then, educate. So apparently, after some reading here, that Megan failed to do. Buffalo Bill's actually very negative on Buffalo Bill. So it's satirical. 
Yeah. Now, how are we supposed to get that from that? Because we're, we're going to read a, a real good satirical one in a, in a minute. Well, but... because he refers to him as a blue-eyed boy, and he calls him Mr. Death. Like, oh, this big American guy. Oh, Mr. Death killed a man. Little blue-eyed boy. That Because he hated war. He also disliked American iconography, like how Americans sucked up to these kind of images. People shooting guns and shit. And so that the whole point of the poem is, yeah, this guy was all prideful. And people were like, oh, look at this awesome guy. Shoot so many clay pigeons. And it's always the pride before the fall. And oh, the guy died anyway. Sucks for him. Ha 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 ha. Also, you got to notice there are actually two characters in the poem. There's Buffalo Bills. And then there's another character who gets a line all to his own. Jesus. Pay attention more to Jesus. Not mm. Buffalo Bill. Ah. Yeah. Jesus, the word Jesus is just sitting there and it's its own surrounded by uh, two big gaps. Yeah. I had figured it was meant to be like a, a pause. Like, Jesus. Oh, it is. Focus on Jesus. Focus Not these on guys Jesus. So next one is just the uh, the number nine. Probably because it was like the ninth poem in a series and poets be like that sometimes. So nine is a fun poem because it, it's very tongue twistery. And uh, it's another one kind of at first glance that... If you'd handed it to me as a student, that would be like, but why though? But I feel like it's a lot more fun and I could actually read it and convey it to you. There are so many TikTok clocks everywhere telling people what TikTok time it is for tick tick instance five talk minutes talk past six tick. Spring is not regulated and does not get out of order, nor do its hands a little jerking move over numbers slowly. We do not wind it up. It has no weights, springs, wheels inside of its slender self. No indeed, dear, nothing of the kind. So when kiss spring comes, we'll kiss each kiss other on the kiss... Uh, fuck. We'll kiss each kiss other on kiss the kiss lips because tick tick clock... Jesus, fuck. Because tick clocks talk don't make a talk tick difference to kiss kiss you and to kiss me. Damn, that was hard. <laughs> Message is pretty clear and basic. Time is an illusion, nature doesn't play by our bullshit measurements, and uh, kiss kiss fall in love, I guess is demonstrated pretty literally in that the parts were Cummings is talking about spring and raw nature aren't dominated by like the TikTok clock sounds. Like, I feel like this is one that seems sort of deceptively more complicated when you look at it just because words, but like it's a straightforward ass poem. E.E. E. Cummings, big boner for nature. Liked nature a lot. Wrote about it frequently. So this might be my favorite one on there. And it is a vicious fucking satirical poem. And uh, it is called Next to, of course, God, America, I. Because, again, it's just the, the whole first line thing. This is just such a pissed off poem. And it's it's so good. And I can't understand how the fuck anyone who, who wrote this can end up as a right-wing McCarthyism supporter. Because, yeah, this was 26. But, like, he would have been 32. So, you know, it wasn't like he was, like, a starry-eyed child. But whatever. Here, I'll read the poem. So it's in dialogue as a, a speech, except for one line at the end, when you'll be able to tell that pretty easily. Next to, of course, God, America, I love you, land of the pilgrims, and so forth. Oh, say, can you see, by the dawn's early, my country, tis of centuries come and go, and are no more. What of it we should worry, in every language, even deaf and dumb, thy sons acclaim your glorious name. By gory, by jingo, by gee, by gosh, by gum. Why talk of beauty? What could be more beautiful than these heroic happy dead who rushed like lions to the roaring slaughter? They did not stop to think, they died instead. Then shall the voice of liberty be mute. He spoke and drank rapidly a glass of water. 
So it's fucking vicious and, and relevant today, I would say, when political language has become sort of even emptier and intentionally devoid of meaning and substance and is sort of just often just regurgitated platitudes that we have like, oh, yes, I love you, land of the pilgrims, and so on and so forth. And yeah, just by, by golly, by gosh, by gum, and that you have these heroic happy dead who rushed like lions to the roaring slaughter. Even the, this, this is the real interesting bit that even the structure is satirical because it's written almost in the form of a, a sonnet, which is, you know, the traditional structure for a, like, a love poem. So it would be like a love letter to blind kind of patriotism, which, as we were talking about, E. Cummings hated, which this politician's speech basically is, but it is specifically a broken sonnet. And I had to look that up because I was like, what the hell is that? So traditional sonnets have two sections, that they have an octave and a, a sestet. Basically eight lines and then a second section of six more, so you get a total of 14 lines. So this poem has 14 lines, but it goes for 13 straight and only breaks at the end for that last line that he he said and then rapidly drank the glass of water. So it's a broken sonnet. So it's, you know, a a fucked up love letter because it's hollow and it's false and... It also adds the interpretation that the man delivering the speech knows it's bullshit, that he stops at the end to just nervously chug a glass of water. But yeah, I really like this poem. <laughs> Do you know when it was written? 1926. Okay. Jingoism. Oh, yeah. Oh, There's there, literally yeah. the line, by Jingo. I guess, do we want to say what Jingoism means to anyone who might not be sure. familiar? He's a brother of Jenga. <laughs> the D is silent. That's not... A large. Okay. It's just hyperbolic nationalism. Yeah. And that's what jingoism is. And it's kind of like hidden in there with like the, oh, by golly, by gosh, like kind of folksy stuff that you, you sneak jingo in there. It's just doing a lot of really cool things on a lot of different levels language wise. Mm-hmm. And I am into that. There you go. And this motherfucker just became, uh, I just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. Oh, he saw what communism looks like. <laughs> And now look at Americans, poised to elect a real communist. Feel the burn uh-huh. of sickle and hammers. This one I threw in just because I like it and I want to read it. And it's called Maggie and Millie and Molly and May. And it's from a collection published in 1958. So he was he was getting on in years and this is why it, it's very, very kind of sweet, simple, and sentimental poem. And it's Maggie and Millie and Molly and May went down to the beach to play one day. And Maggie discovered a shell that sang so sweetly she couldn't remember her troubles. And Millie befriended a stranded star whose raised five languid fingers were. And Molly was chased by a horrible thing which raced sideways while blowing bubbles. And May came home with a smooth round stone as small as a world and as large as a loan. For whatever we lose, like a you or a me, it's always ourselves we find in the sea just really like that yeah um i feel like the poem honestly has earned the right to exist just with the line like as small as a world and as large as alone because like fuck dude this is a big mood the ending stanza is the one that gets me like for context the phrase like a you or a me is in parentheses which is interesting because it's it's like an aside you know like someone's telling you this sort of intimate thing that whatever we lose even if it's each other even if it's ourselves that we'll, we'll find it again in the sea. You return to nature and you find yourself again in it. I'm a sucker for that shit. Uh, there's also a video on YouTube of Natalie Merchant singing it uh, as a song set to like really pretty music. And like, it's really beautiful. It, uh, it feels like a lullaby and I kind of love it. So you can look that up on YouTube. <laughs> what? 
there was a song called Blah Blah Blah. I was trying to place who sung it, but that was the guy singer. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, Sean Mullins. Wasn't that Rockabye? Oh. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. He says Rockabye. Oh. But the song's called Blah Blah Blah. That's a Another. Sh- that's a club banger from the '90s for all you young folk out there. Uh, Find it. And now we uh we got to get to a horny one because there's there's always a horny one, and like we said, he was among other things a horny poet. My father moved through dooms of love. No, that's not the horny one. That's the sad one. Through sames of am, <laughs> through halves of give. Oh, you're just going to read it then, huh? I'm half masked already. The horny one's called uh, May I Feel, said he, which is like already getting there. Proper grammar. <laughs> Megan would ask, can I feel? <laughs> yeah. Teach your kids grammar. Okay. Can I go to the bathroom? I'm sure you can, Billy. Wow. Yeah. That's a pe- people super love it when people do that. Strict grammarians are the most fun at parties. Words matter. So this is published in 1935 and is considered to be one of his most famous horny poems. And while I can't really verbalize where in the poem there are parentheses, it really doesn't take anything away from it. It's a super fun poem to read actually because it's kind of a, a duet. And it's kind of sexy, but kind of funny, and, and also, of course, kind of weird. And there's adultery. Because, well, I was going to say there's always fucking adultery, but now we know that the, the adultery was... Um, Double E's his own. Yeah. It was from life. He was writing what he knew. But like I said, it's it's a back-and-forth dialogue kind of poem, so RJ and I are going to do it together. If you know what I mean. And what I mean is read a poem. <laughs> May I feel, said he. I'll squeal, said she. Just once, said he. It's fun, said she. May I touch, said he. How much, said she. A lot, said he. Why not, said she. Let's go, said he. Not too far, said she. What's too far, said he. Where you are, said she. I hear that a lot, (laughs) says RJ. (laughs) May I stay, said he. Which way, said she. Like this, said he. If you kiss, said she. (laughs) May I move, said he. Is it love, said she. If you're willing, said he. But you're killing, said she. Oh, then it's rape. Ooh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one of the, the... The killing is one of the lines that I'm like the least clear on but anyway <laughs> you kill killing my servant <laughs> but it's life said he but your wife said she now said he ow said she tip top said he don't stop said she oh no <laughs> oh no said he go slow said she come said he um said she you're divine said he you are mine said she <laughs> now in rj's defense the come is written as he said it <laughs> now usually after i have relations with my partners <laughs> i end it by saying tip top cheerio i like that on the head i like the oh no <laughs> Oh no. Um. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, it's 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 funny. I like it. And even if themes of adultery are fucking tiresome. Notice he's the one who's married in this one. Oh. At least it's kind of clever here that he starts things off very innocently before dropping in like, oh, also, this is an affair. Once you're already like invested, like, haha, I've tricked you. 
Uh, and the, the last interesting thing is that there's only one capitalized word in the entire poem, and that is the mine in the last line, you are mine, said she, which is generally interpreted as a subversion of the idea of sex as like a male power play, that she is the one holding the power in the situation with the statement and the capitalized mine, like, got you wrapped around my finger, something like that. I got your seed. Gross. Okay, so we can't just end things on a horny poem. We could. We could, but we're not going to. We're going to get sincere. We're going to get heart horny and finish things off with a genuine love poem, a slight structural modernist twist on a sonnet form. It's called I Carry Your Heart With Me, and it's from 1952. Structurally, it's weird. Like, it has a funky visual structure and, like, choppy mid-thought line breaks and running words and punctuation together. But there's actually a recording of E.E. Cummings himself reading it on YouTube, and he doesn't read it with any of those. He reads it as though it had, like, a normal structure, which I thought was really interesting, that he just ignores the weird shit that he did. (laughs) Also, his voice, not very pleasant. Kind of off-putting. Why? It's just kind of very flat and sort of nasally, and it has a, a weird, almost accent that I, I can't quite pin down that I guess is like fucking rich-ass Cambridge accent. I don't know. But yeah, I, just, I thought that was interesting that he just ignores his own structure, so that's how I'm gonna read it, too, sort of. I might take some liberties, because like... I don't know, I like the feeling of reading where some of the words flow together really quickly because it's like sort of conveying an intensity of an emotion of like, oh, these feelings are are like coming so strong and quickly that I can barely even get them out. And that sounds like we're going back into horny territory again. But okay, so I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life which grows higher than a soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Aww. I don't know. I just, I, I like the imagery and intonation. I think it's pretty, it's nice. It's considered one of his most famous love poems. And that's all for poems. So in terms of adaptations and like cultural influence, like the Natalie Merchant video I mentioned earlier, a lot of his poems have been set to music, which makes sense because a lot of them have a very musical quality to their recitation. Uh, The list of musicians who've used Cummings' poems spans from Leonard Bernstein to Block Party to Bjork. Bjork. uh, She wears swans. Yes, she does. And also John Cage, the avant-garde composer, famous for doing the song where no one plays instruments for four and a half minutes in order to make the audience very uncomfortable. Four minutes and 33 seconds, I believe. Yeah, I believe, yeah. Oh, it's important to get it right, Meg. Okay. It's those last three seconds that get you. Shit gets real. There's also the Vampire Weekend song, Ladies of Cambridge. The title references E.E. Cummings' poem called The Cambridge Ladies Who Live in Furnished Souls. And I didn't read that one because it's mostly just about how housewives in Cambridge are, like, vapid or something. And uh, the Vampire Weekend song really just references the poem and title and not really at all in the actual content of the song. And their song, Oxford Comma, references commas. 
like briefly. <laughs> Which really, it's more about like why would you speak to me that way and uh, know your butler, unlike other guys. <laughs> Commas, which are what E.E. E. used in his poems. He did. He used a lot of those. They were also from Massachusetts. Like E.E. E. Cummings. Well, yeah, that's probably why they referenced it. Because yeah. he was obsessed with, like, fucking that whole area. And so now we come to that part of the show. I think we came. I, I mean, you came ages ago. I arrived. <laughs> you completed. To to the part of the show that we always, we always come to eventually. And that is Hey RJ. So this segment is called Hey RJ. I just want to be clear. No, it's the fact that I I've never named this segment anything, and so I always just say it's the part of the show that we eventually always get to. For like fifty six episodes in, so it's like, well, at this point, just leaning into it. Hey RJ. So E E come ings, good or bad? Three spurts. Any more than that is just excessive. The average male ejaculate is, I believe, a tablespoon worth. Why is that something you know off the top of your head? Oh, head. The Ah. average human head weighs eight pounds. Thank you, kid from, what, Jerry Maguire? Wow, we're making all the great references on this one. Welcome to Ono Liklas, I Love the 90s. (laughs) You complete us. Wait, I thought Jerry Maguire was You Had Me at Hello. No, You Complete Me Also. Really? Got them all. Oh, wow. You've never seen this movie. Yes, I have. Oh, all right. Anyway, E.E. Cummings. Now, I'm about this. Uh, I'm about the poetry, most of them. Not the racist ones. Yeah. Questionable about the man, I guess, too. Yeah. The art, though. Yeah. Grasshoppers, hearts, touching, (laughs) falling leaves. It's good stuff. I like it when things look like things. You know, like those... Foods that look like other foods but taste like the first food? Whoa. Like when they make like a cake that looks like a burger? They also make sushi that looks like hot dogs. They do. Anyway, E.E. Cummings. Fun stuff. Try to copy his material. Imagine RJ tried to copy E.E. Cummings. Just kind of spelled out looking like me. Yeah. Kind of angular. (laughs) Sitting at a desk. Farting. Oh, it'd be coming out the backside. He farted just. He ar- farted just now. It would say arting. Then F at the end. Yes, with an F at the end. I'm just gonna say, if you're gonna throw me under the bus for my farts, I'm gonna do it to you too. That'd be good. You make an ass happen <laughs> out of the letters. Yep. And then it says it's arting. arting. <laughs> Thanks, Mister Cummings. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Double E to the C to the um to the ings. Yeah. Your thoughts. Basically the same as yours. E. Cummings, the dude, clearly kind of problematic. Just really can't get past his views later in life. But man, some of the I do love a lot of those poems. They're they're really you know just trying to do something interesting and different. And I like the idea of the ones where you do have to kind of look at it more than just sort of cursory but you get rewarded that's the thing it's like it's almost like kind of solving a a puzzle which is cool as opposed to like poems that are uh, obtuse or difficult to understand just because and that you know solving them so to speak doesn't really get you anything or anywhere so i like that and i i just like the 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 sound and the intonation of his more straightforward ones dude wrote some pretty poems dude also apparently wrote some pretty racist poems he thought they weren't, I guess. So, the poems are good. It's the thing we always end up coming down with is, uh, where are you willing to stand on separating art from artist and all that fun stuff? 
Yeah. I'm able to separate Essie Hinton from her Twitter feed. <laughs> Deep cuts. And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. If uh, you want to carry us in your heart the way we carry you in ours, you can subscribe to us and spread the word and, you know, share share the show with your friends, your family, the people that you're having affairs with, you know, once once you're done doing all the sexy stuff, you can be like, hey, maybe check out this podcast, why don't you? It'll put you in the mood. You can check us out on Twitter at Pod. You can join the Facebook group and do book memes. Push us on Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass and get all kinds of bonus content and swag and early access to episodes is the thing that I've been managing to do lately, so that's a thing, too, that you can get. And you can always listen to us anywhere, everywhere, and at onolitclass.com. I haven't thanked Best Day in, like, a million episodes, so thank you to Best Day for the use of our, our theme song, Man of the Year, which you can listen to along with the rest of his music at soundcloud.com slash best-day. The next episode will be on May 2nd. Until then, I'm Megan. Um, My heart will go on forever. RJ. We love you. Bye. See the Titanic app in the 90s. (laughs) Just so the audience knows. (laughs) The relationship between Megan and I is in an awkward phase since I've seen How to Train Your Dragon 3 and Megan has not.